0: what a day that's going to be when we stand there um, in heaven realizing that we're victorious, but it wasn't us, right? Um, It was Christ through us. We dismiss the kids right now. Um, Kids, you can go to your classes if you'd like to, and uh, we're we're going to pray for you as you go. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord, thank you again this morning for the reminder of your work in us, that it's your power in us that makes a difference, that our our hope is, is secure um, because of your work and not our own. Lord, we're just grateful for what you are doing in our lives. Lord, I pray for the kids as they go to their classes. Lord, I pray that you would continue to open their hearts and, and uh, show them your, your strength and your majesty and your goodness, and uh, that their hearts would be turned to you. Lord, all of us need that. We we live in a world where there are so many um, messages and noises coming at us constantly, and so remind us again this morning of your greatness and your goodness and, and your care for our lives. We uh, we stand in need of a fresh touch from you this morning, and uh, as so Lord, touch our hearts in our own area of need as only you can. As we open your word, open our hearts, and just say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated welcome you here this morning welcome those who are joining us online thank you for joining us and um, i'd like to just again um just thank you like leon said for just for being a part of this and a part of our group and and i just appreciate each one of you so much and and um, if you're new here this morning we are kind of working our way through first samuel we're ready for uh, first samuel chapter 8 this morning and we titled this series, Looking for a King, because that's really what the book of 1 Samuel is about, is Israel's longing for a king, but it's more than that, it's our longing for a king, it's humans longing for a king, that we long for a perfect king, and this is sort of, um, I don't know if I would say this is the necessarily the pinnacle of 1 Samuel, but this is one of the key stories of 1 Samuel, especially in that idea that theme of looking for a king in first samuel chapter 8 if you've been following with us you know sort of the progression of story how we went from hannah praying for a little boy or praying for a child and then god giving her a little boy named samuel she dedicates him to the service of god and you know how the story goes on eli is the high priest at that point eli dies and as Israel is defeated in a battle and not only are they defeated but the ark of the covenant is stolen and then we looked at how the ark of the covenant was stolen by the philistines it was taken to the philistine temple and their god falls down in front of the ark of the covenant so we see the the hand of god the might of god on display there and and then it goes on and it talks about how there's a there's a great revival that happens as the ark is returned back to israel And we looked at that last Sunday. We looked at how they came and they were repentant in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And they repented of their sins and there was a revival that happened. And it says at the end of chapter 7 there that all of the days of Samuel that God kept the Philistines from defeating them anymore. And that God was protecting them from the Philistines. Now there's been quite a space of time. I don't know exactly how... Much time has happened between chapter 7 and chapter 8, but we're picking up this morning, and there's, if you would look in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, there's a little white space between chapter 7 and chapter 8. There is in mine. I'll bet there is in yours, too. That white space represents a number of years between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Chapter 7 talks about um, those that 20-year period where Samuel is... is or the 20-year period where the ark sat, and then Samuel ministers, but then it doesn't say exactly how many years there are, but chapter 8 picks up, and it begins with these words, when Samuel became old. So now, Samuel is an old man, and things, the story is moving along pretty quickly. And what we're going to see over the next couple chapters is sort of a description of some of Samuel's And toward the end of his life, and then the rest of 1 Samuel, Samuel is probably an old man, and it's his latter days of ministering as Israel's judge and prophet, but we're going to pick it up in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, and first and foremost, there is a problem, and I want to read verses 1 through 6, and this is the problem that sort of comes up. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, "'Behold, you are old.' and your sons do not walk in your ways, now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing that Samuel, when they said, give us a king to judge us, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. We're going to stop there for just a moment. We're going to pick it up. You see the problem? The problem is that Samuel, sort of like Eli, his predecessor, Samuel was not had not done a good job of transferring and passing along his faith to his sons. He gave them power, he gave them position, but they had not adopted his faith. Now there isn't much more, more that's dangerous in any group of people than somebody who has power and position, but not faith and a moral compass to guide them. And that's a description of Samuel's boys. Now it doesn't look like they were as bad as Eli's boys in the sense of, you know, some of the things that it says about Eli's boys is that they were, um, they were literally stealing the sacrifice that belonged to God. Um, they were committing sexual immorality with women in the temple. Um, it doesn't say all these things about Samuel's boys, but it does say that they were perverted and they took bribes. And that they um, that they perverted justice. So if you lived in that area, especially of Beersheba, where Samuel's boys are are in charge, you look around you and you see a lot of injustices. So you might see, I'm just speculating, but you might see some um, overbearing person taking somebody else's land away from them, but he's bribing the guys at the temple, and so you go looking for justice and saying, my land was stolen, or my, or my cattle were stolen, or whatever, I'm the victim of injustice. But the problem is, the perpetrator of injustice has been bribing the, the guys who are in charge. So the guys who are in charge don't do anything about it. And injustices continue to happen. That's the picture of Samuel's son. And if you've ever lived in the context of looking around and seeing that victims of injustice don't get justice, and the ones who perpetrate injustices just keep doing it, and they're actually empowered to do it some more, there's this sense of helplessness and this longing for God to step in and do something. You want somebody to step in and do something. You want somebody to deal with the bullies, because the bullies exist in every generation. And they did in their generation, they do in ours, but there's this longing for justice when, there is, when we're in the presence of bullies and injustice. So if you had been living, if I had been living in that time, there would be this sense of something is not right, and justice is not being done, and I don't like living in that kind of a world. None of us do. So, their answer is to come to Samuel and say, We've been looking at the nations around us, and we notice that they have kings. And we want a king. So, make us a king. Get us a king. And it says that the thing displeased Samuel. And that word displeased is kind of an interesting word because if you would unpack it, it really means, it really points to Samuel saw it as an evil. Samuel looked at it and he said, this is not right. This is wrong. We have a problem here. And that Samuel did the best thing he could have done. The last thing it says there in verse 6, is, it says, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. Boy, I wonder how God's going to answer this. I bet God's going to say, stand back, Samuel, I'm going to hit him. Or maybe God's going to say, No. I'm not giving them a king. That's a terrible idea. Or maybe God will say, someday they could have a king, but not this generation. They're motivated. They have wrong motives. They don't understand what they're asking for. Let's look at how God answers. In verse 7, Samuel's been praying. Verses 7 through 9, it says, And the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. That's not what I expected God to say. I wouldn't have expected God to say, go ahead and give them a king. Obey their voice. Especially not when he says, obey them and understand that they're not rejecting you, Samuel, they're rejecting me. God's saying they're rejecting him. And he says, and they've been doing this since Egypt, by the way. They keep doing this. They keep turning aside to things that are less than God because they're more comfortable to follow than actual Jehovah God. And I, you've heard me talk about this before. Like, I, I think so many times of that scene in Mount Sinai where God is thundering from the top of the mountain and they're building golden calves at the bottom of the mountain. What are they thinking? In no stretch of imagination can a golden calf lead a group of people better than a God who thunders from the mountain. But golden calves can be manipulated. They're under our control. And this Jehovah God is never under our control. He rules and reigns above and far beyond any limitations that we could put on Him. And it's that that kept turning them back to idolatry. It's Like we are much more comfortable with a God that we fashion in our heads than we are the God of the Bible. Now, it didn't stop with the children of Israel, you know that. It happens constantly. How many times have you been in a conversation and you hear somebody say, well, I don't think that God would ever fill in the blank. Or I like the parts about God that are where he's loving and he heals. Great. Do you also like the parts where he strikes people in wrath? (laughs) Because whether you like it or whether you don't like it does not change who God is. You and I do not get the authority to manufacture God into our own ideas and our own image and then say he has to bow to who we think he is. He doesn't have to bow to that at all. And I'm glad he doesn't. I don't want a God who bows to our whims. That's a weak God. I don't want a God who can be manipulated by the opinions of people. That's a weak God, but it never stops people from trying. And God is saying to Samuel, he says, go ahead and give him a king. He says, this is a rejection of him. And he says, they've been doing this since Egypt. And then he says, but I want you to solemnly warn them and show them what's going to happen. And so we're going to pick it up in verse 10. And by the way, we're reading the whole passage this morning. We're just kind of taking it in sections. We're going to pick it up in verse 10 and read to verse 18. And it says, So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your male servants and female servants and and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's quite a warning, isn't it? How many times does he say in that passage, he will take, he will take, and he will take. This is going to change the culture of Israel. It's going to move governance from family and region autonomy to a national governance. And that's what they're asking for. They're saying, we want a national, gover- we want a national government figure to lead us. And Samuel says, you should understand that when that happens, you're going to lose your autonomy and he's going to take and take and take. So this introduces for the first time for them, taxation and inscription. So he's going to force you to fight in his armies. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your stuff. And then you know, and I'm reading that and saying... The warning was that he would tax them 10% of their stuff. And I'm thinking, as an American right now, I'd be happy with 10%. (laughs) Like that old country song, you know, if 10% is good enough for Jesus, it ought to be enough for Uncle Sam. (laughs) Kind of was thinking about that. And Samuel's warning them. He says, this is what this is going to look like with a king. Have you heard about taxes? Let me tell you about taxes. And so he shares it. He's just like, this is what it feels like. How do you feel about a tenth of everything you own going to this king? And you would think in that moment that all of the elders of Israel would take a step back and say, yeah, maybe this wasn't a good idea at all. Maybe we shouldn't be asking for a king. I mean, really, who wants to pay a tax on everything that they already own?" That doesn't sound like a good plan at all. And so, we pick it up in verse 19. I expect the people are going to answer and say, let's think this through. Let's go back to some form of judges or prophets. Like, could we rethink this? That's not what the people say. In verse 19 it says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Even after the warning, even after they're told what's coming, The people respond, and they say, no, make us a king. We want a king that will judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, incidentally, those desires are not actually bad desires. A sense of desire for justice and for military might against their enemies were not bad desires. They weren't wrong for wanting those things. They were wrong for thinking that if they had an earthly king, that that would all be taken care of. So, after God has clearly warned them, they're still insistent, we want a king. Now, if you've been hanging out here very long, you know where I'm going to wind up with this message. You know that at some point we're going to talk about the King of Kings, right? I hope you know that. That we're going to talk about Jesus because Jesus said in the New Testament several times, what does He say? These scriptures are about Him. So we're going there. And you see this event and this story actually starting to point toward Jesus. But... This is a mess, isn't it? And it raises questions. Question number one. Is a king a good idea or a bad idea? Like when they're asking for justice and for victory over their enemies, what's wrong with that? Nothing. When they're wanting a leader who will lead them correctly, what's wrong with that? nothing actually in fact if you would go back in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 17 I think it's about verses 14 to 20 if I'm not mistaken as Moses is giving his final words to the children of Israel and he's reminding them of the law he says something very interesting in Deuteronomy chapter 17 he says God is speaking and God says When the children of Israel, when they get into the land of Canaan and they look around at the nations around them and they want a king, he says, go ahead and give them a king. And God had already anticipated in Deuteronomy the day that the children of Israel would ask for a king and he said, and I'm going to allow them to have a king. So this did not take God by surprise, by the way. None of this shocked God that these people were suddenly asking for a king. God saw it coming. He anticipated it. And he even gave some parameters for it if you go back to Deuteronomy. Second question. Why did God give them what was bad for them? The answer to the first question is both. It's both a good idea and a bad idea. It's a good idea for humankind to have a king of kings. It was a bad idea for them to have a king that they were asking for. He made it very clear. He says, you're you're going to lose a lot of your freedoms in the process of this king. So then why did God give them what was clearly a bad idea for them? Why? Why? I don't know. <laughs> Neither do you. Here's what I do know that God's sovereign plan does not depend on the faithfulness of men. Let me say that again God's sovereign plan does not depend on the faithfulness of men. God did not need them to get it right in order to accomplish his sovereign plan of bringing the Messiah to mankind. God did not need them to understand it in order for him to accomplish what he had set in his plan from the beginning that Christ would come and redeem fallen mankind. Why does God give them what is clearly bad for them? You could say, well, there's a sense of judgment. And that would be right. That's correct. There is a sense of judgment on his people in this in this. Um, there is a sense of God taking the brokenness of mankind and using it. He will eventually redeem that very thing. And that's true. It doesn't explain all of the whys, because it raises more questions. You know, like, well, couldn't have He done it a different way? Well, sure, He could have done it a different way. But you see, in this story, that mixture of the, the freedom of choice that we have... The ability to reject God, the, re- the ability to obey Him, and the sovereignty of God over all of it. Like, you see these together. These are the questions that theologians wrestle with. Mine's much better than any of ours here. Wrestle with these questions of, of our ability to choose or reject God, or His sovereign power at work in our lives and in the, and in the story of mankind. And you see them interwoven throughout human history, throughout Scripture. Even in the crucifixion you see that. You see men committing evil in crucifying Jesus on the cross. And they're held accountable for that evil, by the way. But you see the sovereign plan of God unfolded for all of human history as Christ dies for the forgiveness of sins for you and I. And that while it looks like man is in charge at times... Over that. Not undermining their freedom of choice. Not removing it. But God is still over all of it. And he's still accomplishing his, pow- his plan and his purposes. So why did God give them what was bad for them? I don't know for sure. I can't explain all of that, but I can tell you this. That he was not dissuaded and his plan for mankind was not put on hold because of it. Here's a bigger question that I've wrestled with this week as I've looked at this story. Because this really applies to some stuff that I see in our day. Here, maybe this is, you know, I don't know, rhetorical. I don't want to stir the pot necessarily, but why do people trade one tyranny for a worse one? Why do people keep doing this? How many times, if you look at, especially at developing countries, you'll see like this uprising. And and a government gets overthrown, and the one that replaces it is worse than the one that was there in the first place. It happens over and over. It happens in personal ways. Where people will make choices and say, Man, I, I wanna I want to go this direction because I think this would give me more freedom, but it winds up giving them less. You know, we just came through celebrating the, the birth of our nation, Independence Day. And you know, it was that sort of that day. Um, I saw these little memes around. You know, happy insurrection day, um, because if you know, or happy treason day, because if you were, you know, King George, um, or Great Britain, and then, then you know, that felt like treason. But I'm grateful that you know that we we were. I think we moved the right direction in that event. But I'm also aware of the fact that we have, we've, we've had these cycles, even throughout our own nation's history, of not caring for, for freedom, not appreciating freedom. I'm like, why? This never made sense to me. Why do people just so willingly hand over freedom? And in this story, you see it happening right in front of your eyes. You see Samuel even warning them, he says, you will have less freedom than you have now. And they're like, that's fine, we want it, give it to us. And you just, I'm just why? I don't know, but human nature doesn't change, and I do know that. Human nature is deeply fearful and insecure, and where we are fearful and insecure, we tend to grab for anything that looks like security, even if it means giving up our freedoms. That happens not only in a civic sense, it happens in a moral sense. And Here's what I mean by that. Morally, we move toward independence from God, not dependence on Him, because we think that dependence on Him is a loss of freedom. Only to discover that moving to independence, where I'm in charge of my life, where I'm independent of God, ends up creating more bondage than I ever had before. And sins can enter our lives that hold us captive for years and destroy us from the inside out. It will take your your peace, your hope, your sanity, all the things that are precious to us, even physical things, And the giving of ourselves over to sin in the guise of freedom is really moving back into a greater tyranny than we were ever in before. And we do this as humans time and again. How many times have you watched a family member move away from dependence on God wanting to be independent for themselves? How many times have you watched it happen in your own life? Like, I'm in charge. I'll live my own life. I'll do my own thing. And you wind up, we wind up trading one tyranny for a worse one. Human nature is fearful and insecure and does not tend to make good choices with these things. Human nature is the problem, isn't it? This whole story is a problem of human nature. The brokenness, the injustices, the attempts to fix it with their own methods. And it raises the big question, will we ever have the king we want? Because this is the king we want. We want a king who leads but doesn't oppress we want a king who protects but doesn't imprison, right? We want, we want a perfect king. We want one who leads us but doesn't force us, who can be followed. We want a king who actually does for, they were asking for a king for protection. That's why they were driven that direction. They wanted that. That was not a bad desire, by the way. That desire was supposed to point them toward God. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, where I referred to a little bit ago, where God anticipates a day where they are going to ask for a king, he put parameters around what that king is supposed to look like, be like how he's supposed to be selected and how he's supposed to govern. If they had obeyed what Moses had given them in Deuteronomy, this story, I believe, would look very different. Because the idea that God had given them in Deuteronomy was that you can have a king if you ask for it, but you need to make sure that this king understands that he is not the supreme authority, that he is under God's authority. So he says, this king in Deuteronomy, he says, this king, when you, when you install him, he needs to keep a copy of the law available all the time and he needs to continue to be in it and understand it and obey it. Why? Because of human nature. Because he understands that this earthly king will never satisfy. So he says when you have the earthly king, you need to put him under God's law. You need to make sure that he understands he's not supreme. And the problems that exist in human governance always come out of people who see themselves as being supreme. It's people who have an overinflated view of themselves and their own power. And, it's, and that's the stuff that generation after generation causes people to say, ah, there's problems, I don't like my government, I, I, maybe it's better than someone else's, but never perfect. And we're always looking for this sense of perfection in, in government and in a king, and we find it. Only in Christ. We need a king who leads us, who doesn't oppress us, who protects us, doesn't imprison us, who makes the wise decision always. That's the kind of king we're looking for. We're looking for one who's perfectly just, who never makes decisions that are wrong. We're looking for a king who turns our failures into victory. That's the kind of king we're looking for. We want a perfect king. Colossians... Hit the button twice. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I love this because I think it addresses this. It says, he, talking about Jesus, he has delivered us. And by the way, read Colossians 1. I mean, it is a chapter full of the dominion of Jesus Christ. Talks about how in, in him all things are created and they are held together. And then he says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That is the king that we're looking for, isn't it? That's the king they were looking for. Can you just speculate with me for a moment how the story would have been different if the elders of Israel had come to Samuel and they had said, we have been reading in, in the law of Moses, that if we would like to have a king, that you would give us a king. And we also read the parameters, that that king should never rule and reign, he should serve, and he should serve under Jehovah God, according to the law. And Samuel, would you help us, in obedience to God, establish a king? that will obey the law of God. And I think, obviously that's not the way the story went, I think the story would have sounded very different. I think that you would see God saying, yes. Not only yes, I will allow it, but yes, I will lead it. Yes, I will help you establish a king. Because one day there will be a king who will deliver you not just from philistines and amorites and hittites and all of those nations around him he will deliver you from the domain of darkness that is the gospel that jesus christ came king of kings and lord of lords that he died for you and i and it says in romans that while we were still sinners christ died for us those of us who were helpless all of us were helpless in our own sins In darkness, he says, the domain of darkness. He's using kingdom language, by the way. He's saying, you were in this country. He's using that kind of language. A country where there was darkness. Where judgment is impaired, where you don't see what's going on. And he says, but Jesus comes and he has delivered us, he has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have, and he says redemption. In other words, he gives us value and purpose to our lives and he forgives us of our sins. That's our king. And this is a sermon and a sentence. We find in Christ the king that we are longing for. And I want so badly for the story of, For Samuel 8 to have been that the elders of Israel came and said we've been reading that there's a great deliverer coming there's there's a messiah coming and would you help us establish a king according to your law so that one day the king will come and we will be delivered for once and for all I wish that's the way the story would have gone it didn't is God bound by that no not at all God is going to accomplish His purposes. He did send His Son, Jesus. He did come. And like it says in Colossians, we just looked at it, we are delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. In Revelation chapter 19, there's an amazing picture of Jesus coming on a white horse. We read it this morning as we were praying together. And the armies behind him on a white horse. And it says that on his robe and on his thigh are written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's our king. But it raises the question this morning. Is he your king? Is he your king? Does Jesus Christ have the preeminence in your life? And are you comforted by that? Life is constantly bringing its challenges. We're busy people. We we come and we go. We run like crazy. We get up in the morning. We're tired when we wake up. And we're even more tired when we go to bed. And and I find so oftentimes, in all of us, that in in the busyness of our lives, that life becomes the king. And God becomes a help to our king. But we're really serving ourselves. And we make the, the life we live the king. And we want God to help. And it shows up in our relationship to things like prayer and the word. Because we, we hurry through the day exhausted most of the time and we end the day and we've not sat with jesus we've not spent time with him we've not learned the discipline of being with jesus and we wonder why we're exhausted all the time here's why we're serving the wrong king that king takes and takes and takes and takes and takes that's why we're exhausted that's why we're tired. It's because we're serving the wrong king. He takes and he takes and it takes. Kings of this world are takers. And what does it say in Colossians where it describes this king, Jesus? It says, He gives. He gives us deliverance from darkness, He gives us redemption, He gives us forgiveness. He grants us freedom from sin. He is a giving king. Do you know him as your king? Do you serve him as your king? Listen, if you're if you're tired and exhausted and you're just tired of serving the kings of this world, your schedule, people's approval, what they think of you, your own ideas. This morning would be a good Morning to change kings. It'd be a good morning to decide, I'm going to serve a different king. I want to serve a king who has granted me everything I long for in a king. Amber, if you guys want to go ahead and come up, I want to bring this to a close. A few deeper study questions. Um, some of you guys are in growth groups, you go through these questions. That, that last one might be a half-hour discussion for you, so enjoy that. Um, I, I think if there's anything I could just, I, I don't want you to leave this morning with a sense of discouragement. I want you to leave encouraged and knowing that we serve a king who does protect us, who is just, who protects us, doesn't imprison us, who leads us he doesn't oppress us isn't it good to know that he is our king is he your king let's pray Lord this morning thank you so much for for this story and for Samuel and and um, and Lord forgive us where where we've made everything else king and like the king that Samuel described it just takes and takes and takes God I pray for the person here this morning who is tired and who's exhausted and who's weary because of the running and because of life, how would you bring them rest this morning? Jesus, you said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You said, take my yoke upon me and learn of me, gentle and lowly. Lord, I pray for each person here this morning and those watching online. I pray that that each of us would come, would come and would find rest and find freedom from the taking, from the tyranny of taking and find you to be the king that gives. Oh God, we love you. And we pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing this final song.